be seated. Let's pray. Oh Lord, our God, we thank you and praise you for another time to be together with your people, to worship you and adore your holy name. And we thank you for another chance to open your word and hear from the truth that is in it. Holy Spirit, please come and bless that we may bless you. Stir up our hearts again with faith and trust. Lord, I'm a weak man, and we are weak people. But you have made us strong by regeneration, by the gift of your Spirit. So strengthen us again even now, that we may attend to the ministry of your Word in a way that honors you. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Our text is Romans chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Hear the word of the Lord. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Amen. So far the reading and hearing of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to it. I was thinking about it, it's been, I was going to say three weeks, it's been four weeks since we've been in Romans. And uh, taking it in these small chunks, it can be uh, easy, uh, not just for you, but even for me to get lost where, where we are. Um, it's been a while since we've been here. We're in a section of Romans that runs from chapter 1, verse 18, through the middle of chapter 3. And it all sort of sprang up from verse 17 of chapter 1, and if you just flip your page back, you can see it there, where Paul wrote, as he talks about the gospel, and he's not ashamed of the gospel, verse 17 of chapter 1, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul, in this section that begins in 118, is seeking to convince anyone and everyone that they have no righteousness to present to God and that they need a righteousness from somewhere else. He, he wants us to know that we need the grace of God if we have any hope of life at all. And you'll remember, we've said it several times now through this section, Paul has in his mind this truth that slight views of sin never lead to a fervent appreciation of grace. If we don't understand how desperate we are, how certainly destined for death we are, then the gospel will mean nothing. And the grace of God will fall to the side. We worked our way through chapter 1, verse 18, through the end to 32. And in those paragraphs, Paul addressed the blatantly ungodly people in the world. He, um, 
he condemned their sinful practices and explained how God's judgment came upon them by the Lord giving them over to those wicked lusts of their hearts. They, they wanted to move away from God, and so God's judgment upon them was, okay, go on your way. It really culminated there at the end of chapter 1 and verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we looked at that section and saw how even those sins have roots in our own hearts. But, but a shift occurred here at the beginning of chapter 2. Paul, in 2 verse 1, turns his attention to religious people. Those who were or are ethnic Jews, those to whom the Lord came first in the course of time. All we mean by that is that, that the Lord sought out Israel as his own particular people in the Old Testament. And so the gospel came to them first before it came uh, to the Greeks and the Gentiles. But there's a characteristic about them that developed over time so that we might say that the Jews that are being addressed here in chapter 2 are those same people who, when verses 18 through 32 of chapter 1 were being read out loud or, or read by them, uh, they, they had their noses upturned at these wicked people, yes, these worldly people that delved into all sorts of lusts and sexual immorality. But Paul jumps in here at the beginning of chapter 2 and explains that God shows no partiality even with the Jews. You have no excuse, he says in 2 verse 1. And he shows them that, that their judgmentalism against those people is really just turning back on them and judging their own hearts for the same things. Maybe not committed to the same degree, but still present in their hearts as they presume upon the kindness of God. They themselves judge their own sins. And then in verse 2, Paul says, and God also judges your sins and condemns you. Right? He made this point that he's going to carry along through this chapter. That, that membership in God's covenant as an ethnic Jew back then was no excuse for sin, was no excuse to continue in the ways of the world while thinking they were safe from the condemnation of God. Paul concludes that first little part in, in 2 verse 3 with, with what one man described as remorseless logic where he arrives at, at verse 3 and says, Do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? Remember, he's pressing home this point. He is seeking to convince everyone that they need a righteousness by faith. That there is no righteousness in themselves. If, if, if your Bible's open, I hope it is, you can just flip over probably one page to chapter 3. I want you to see where we're headed. I want you to see the, the momentum of Paul's argument. We still have quite a while to go. In my Bible, there's a heading after 3 verse 20. And in 20, verse 22 of chapter 3, Paul speaks of this righteousness. It's the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And this is where he drives home the point that he's making in the current section we're in. For there is no distinction, verse 23, that most of us know off the top of our heads, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift 
through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is where he's trying to move us even now. He, he, he is trying to convince each and every one of us that we are hopelessly destined for death apart from the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from faith and trust in him, apart from the Holy Spirit going to work in our hearts and drawing us to the Lord. And so we arrive at verses 4 and 5 here in chapter 2. And it, John Calvin was the first one that I read that made this suggestion that verses 4 and 5 are, are Paul's way of responding um, to a hypothetical argument from a hypothetical opponent. So he imagines an objection that someone would raise at what he said so far in chapter 2. And verses 4 and 5 are his response to this if you will, imaginary objection, but still very real in our hearts, I think we will see. The opponent, Paul imagines, may have said something like, well, Paul, Paul, listen, slow down. You misunderstand. We are good, moral Jews. The best there have ever been. The Lord loves us, and He's, he's come to us. He came to, to Abraham and Moses and the other patriarchs, and He drew us into a family, a covenant family, to be a part of His kingdom. And though we may sin, yes, you say, will we escape the judgment of God? This hypothetical, hypothetical opponent says, God's kindness and patience will far outlast our sin. To this hypothetical, maybe anticipated argument, Paul responds with verses 4 and 5. And for all of us as we work through this text, the questions loom. Have you come to grips with what your sin deserves? Have you come to grips with your need of the mercy of God? Have you come to grips with the reality that, that the mercy of God is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ, not in anything you do, not in anything you are or try to be, but only in our Lord Jesus. Essentially, Paul has two charges that he levels against such a person arguing with him, one in verse 4 and the second in verse 5. He says to them, living like this in the first place, in verse 4, you are slighting the goodness of God. And, in verse 5, you are provoking the wrath of God. Those two points are from Matthew Henry, actually. Paul charges them with slighting the goodness of God and provoking his wrath. Before we get into these, I just want to encourage you again. We've, we've said similar things to this as we've worked our way through these sections. Please continue to humble yourself before God's Word. As Paul presses on his mission to expose the, the, the hypocrisy of the religious and outwardly moral Jew, see to your own heart, friends. Any goodness that has been worked in you is the result of God's kindness and forbearance and patience. You need a righteousness outside of yourself just as much as anyone. That's Paul's goal, is to convince you of that. So let's take a look. 
Look at verse 4 again. He's made this argument from the beginning of the chapter. You have no excuse. You practice the same kinds of things. Do you suppose you'll escape the judgment of God? And now in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul begins here by accusing this hypothetical Jewish man of presuming upon God's kindness. Remember, an outward uh, a Jew back then, a good ethnic Jew, whether his heart was changed by the gospel or not, would have been familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. He would have known his catechism questions. Any Baptist in the room, he would have been winning all the sword drills. He knew where everything was. He's a good Jewish young man. And this is why Paul assumes in his question that he is familiar with the kindness of God. The Jews knew the wonderful stories of God's mercy and grace. They were well aware of of the text related to the Exodus and how the Psalms recounted God's wonderful works. They knew how God had led the people out of slavery in Egypt to to a new land flowing with milk and honey. They remembered the compassion of God that was shown to Israel as a people in the face of, of a rotten King Saul and the Lord anointing and bringing to the throne King David, a man after his own heart. They were familiar with, with the works and words of the prophets that whenever they came proclaiming what, what is more commonly in our minds as we think about the prophets, judgment and warning against God's people, a good Jew remembers that even when those harsh words came, the promises of God's comfort and consolation and a coming Redeemer came along with the words of the prophets. They remembered the, the kindness of God even in the midst of hard things. And so Paul asks them, you, you are so aware of the kindness of God. Why do you despise it? Why do you despise it? Because the, the assumption here at the end of verse 3, when Paul asks them if, if they think they will escape the judgment of God, the, the, the unspoken answer for this arrogant, judgmental Jewish man is, yes, I do suppose I'll escape the judgment of God. And that's why Paul comes in and says, why do you, it, it, my ESV says that, that they presume on the riches of His kindness. It may better say that, that they despise the riches of God's kindness. Martin Luther wrote about that first word, the kindness of God. He says, the riches of God's kindness consist in the abounding fullness of His temporal and spiritual benefactions, such as the blessings of body and soul, the free use of His creatures, the services which they render mankind, the protection of the holy angels, and the like. Luther rightly establishes a good definition of kindness. It's whether you're a believer or not, all you have has been given to you by the kindness of God. We may call it His common grace. Everything you have. Life and breath and everything. 
has been given to you by your Creator, the Lord God. Luther goes on and describes next the forbearance of God. He says the riches of God's forbearance consist in His abundant clemency with which He bears those who reward His divine blessings with ingratitude and in addition requite good with evil by committing so many more and greater sins. You know, whoever you are, when, when the sin of unthankfulness rises up against the kindness of God and His common grace and mercy, the Lord's clemency towards you in your ingratitude is His forbearance. And Luther rightly points out that, that even as you go further than ingratitude and you respond to the goodness of God, the kindness of God, with outright evil and sin and much greater things than unthankfulness and ingratitude, that too, the restraint of His wrath against that sin is God's forbearance. Luther lastly says here about God's patience that it is, rather he says, the riches of God's patience manifest themselves in this that he postpones his punishment of such ungrateful sinners for an incredibly long time waiting for his goodness to lead them to repentance. What is God's patience? What is this long-suffering of the Lord? The fact that anyone in the world wakes up from day to day is a sign of God's patience. The apostles talk about it in the New Testament, how God is patient towards sinners, desiring that they would come to faith and repentance and be saved. Peter talks about it in 2 Peter chapter 3, describing the Lord, saying, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but rather is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, he's, he's writing, and, and perhaps he's writing to Christians who are thinking, well, I wish the Lord would finally just come. And Peter says, the Lord's not slow. He's patient. He's, he's, he's suffering long, the sinners in this world, so that some may still come to repentance and faith. Paul talks about it as well in 1 Timothy chapter 1 in, in relationship to himself. As he speaks of his own experience of the gospel, he writes, I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner... Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. I mean, Paul had it all out for the church. He was murdering people. He was throwing them in prison. He was holding the coats as they stoned Stephen. What greater patience, Paul says, could be displayed than what Christ has shown to me? God's kindness and forbearance and patience are are what we hear of so often in the Old Testament in places like Psalm 103 where the Lord is described. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And we've said it over and over again as we've talked about God's mercy, especially as we worked our way through Exodus in the evenings. God's mercy, even toward His people, beloved, is His constant, persistent refusal to be rid of you though you may still sin against Him. This is what Paul's talking about. 
God's kindness and forbearance and patience, His long-suffering and His mercy. The Jews in Paul's sphere knew the Word of God that had been given to them. They knew that He was merciful and gracious. They knew that He was kind and forbearing and patient. And what? They continued to sin. They continued further up in the chapter that we've already been through to point at the pagan world in judgmentalism while still committing the same things themselves. You have no excuse, Paul told them, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. They imagined, oh, would the Lord keep us from such a thought. They imagined that because the Lord had reached down and called to them, and because they had been living in the midst of a Jewish nation, because they had been going through the motions of outward religion, because they had been born into a church and made a profession of faith, they imagined that they could claim the Lord by these outward motions of religion and yet live on the inside and in the world however they wanted and claim that everything was going to be okay and that the judgment of God would not condemn them. Why? Because they went to church on Sundays. Because their names were written in a roll in some church office somewhere. No matter if you are a first century Jew, none of us are, or if you're a 21st century Christian who presumes on the kindness of God, Paul says what this shows is that you misunderstand the intention of God's kindness and patience. God's patience is not so that we can sin as much as we want before we die. That's not why He's patient with you. God is kind and patient towards you. Do you see? He asks, don't you know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? When Sproul writes about this passage... Um, he refers to a famous sermon preached by the, the congregational pastor during the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards. In Edwards' sermon, some of y'all have heard of this, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It's probably the only sermon by Edwards that you've ever heard of. Edwards said, O sinner, can you give any reason why since you have risen from your bed this morning, God has not stricken you dead? Sproul goes on to write, what Edwards was getting at is this. If you consider honestly the rebelliousness that you have practiced since you got out of your bed this morning, can you give a rational explanation for why God has withheld judgment from you? Sproul goes on, if you are thinking that the reason is because God is kind and merciful, you are correct. But some people are perpetually angry with God, feeling that He has not treated them fairly. And Sproul asks, what is it that God owes us? This is precisely what leads to repentance. What does God owe you? 
no good thing. He would be right to cast all of us broken pots into the trash heap and begin all over again, wouldn't he? Isn't that kind of what we expect? The fact that there's anything in the Bible after Genesis 3, if you really consider it, is baffling. This is why his kindness and forbearance and patience lead you to repentance. Consider what he owes you. And then consider what he has poured out instead. He has bestowed his kindness upon you. Temporal and spiritual blessings. Common grace beyond measure. He's shown you forbearance in every measure of your life. He's extended clemency to you again and again toward your ingratitude and your unthankfulness. He's shown you his patience and postponed his just punishment of ungrateful sinners waiting so that we might be led to repentance. And Christian, for you in particular, he has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. It is here at the end of this first charge that Paul beckons us. Won't you consider where you have presumed upon God's kindness and repent? Won't you turn from your sin and turn back to God in faith and new obedience, even if it's again? Won't you turn to Him in love and thankfulness for all the mercy that He has extended to you, not just in the common grace of His kindness, but especially in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does God owe any of us? Let's see what He has given. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How dare we presume upon His kindness and lean into our sin. But what happens? What happens if we don't follow God into repentance? What happens if we continue to spurn His kindness Several commentators consider Romans 2, verse 5, one of the most terrifying verses in all of the New Testament writings. Look at it. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. This is the person who knows of God's kindness. They've experienced His forbearance and His patience. They've been told of their need to turn from sin and back to the Lord, and yet they continue to despise His kindness. And in so doing, this second charge is leveled. They have provoked the wrath of God. Luther again helps us understand what this hard and impenitent heart is. He says a hardened heart is a heart that despises God's kindness 
that despises God's forbearance, that despises God's patience. It receives innumerable blessings, and yet it commits countless sins and never thinks of mending its evil ways. And as a result, Paul says, it stores up wrath. Consider this, friends, that God's patience does not endure forever. Have you thought of this? There will come a day when God will judge sinners for their transgressions. It's the wrath that he talks about in verse 18 of the previous chapter. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And the rest of chapter 1, as we've already seen, is an expansion of that temporal judgment. But there is an eternal judgment coming when the wrath of God will be fully revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And God will be vindicated and Christ will rule and reign and every knee will bow before Him. On that day, we praise the Lord, all who have trusted in Christ by faith are safe and secure because our judgment has fallen on Him. But for those who have refused to turn from sin and toward Christ, they will suffer the wrath of God against their sin. That's why Paul says such a person who refuses with all the benefits of of, of being an ethnic Jew, with all the benefits of being in the midst of the ordinances of God's grace and worship, they've been attending church, they've been in, in communicants classes, they've been in Sunday school, they've been in prayer meetings, they've made a profession of faith, and yet they live like the world and they turn from away from God expecting that He will still save them from wrath. And because of all this presumption, Paul says no. In fact, you are storing up wrath. One author phrases it like this. He says, this person is amassing like hoarded treasure an ever-accumulating stock of divine wrath to burst upon him in the day of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Zoom out a little bit with me. Consider the pagans addressed at the second half of chapter 1 and these, um, these religious, moral people addressed in chapter 2. The pagan will be condemned because he has denied the truth of God that's revealed in creation and in his own conscience. He's become an idolater, a sexual deviant, a plague upon humanity as a result of his denial of the Lord God. But the situation of the judgmental, moral-appearing, religious person is much more serious. For those who know the kindness and patience of God because of it constantly being declared to them, and yet they have rejected the call to repentance that those declarations are, for such a person a surprising, admittedly to them a surprising and serious end await. You are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. 
friends sitting here in our Presbyterian sanctuary being good evening worship goers, we need to be diligent to see that we are not among the latter group. The Lord, by His kindness, has shown us that we can turn to Him in repentance and faith. Won't you believe afresh tonight that unlike God's patience towards sin, His mercy endures forever. That He constantly, persistently refuses to be rid of those who come to Him in faith believing. Won't you look to the Lord Jesus who revealed God's mercy to you by bearing all the wrath that you have stored up for yourself? By faith in Him, you need not bear it in that day of judgment. Christ has borne it for you. Won't you trust the Lord tonight to receive all who come to Him in faith and repentance? Won't you be comforted by God's kindness and forbearance and patience? Do you see how good He has been to us? Praise the Lord. Amen. Father, for the sake of Your Son, send the Holy Spirit to write the truth of Your Word upon our hearts that we may not sin against You. Forgive us, Lord, where we have presumed upon Your kindness. Oh, Lord, would you draw us away from sin and the world and draw us more and more into godliness and righteousness. Make us sick of sin and fill us up with your grace and mercy for the glory of Christ.